Welcome to Time to Market, a podcast by Lean B2B and SK Murphy, where we share principles, actionable advice, and rules of thumbs for B2B founders. This week, there's no more teasing. Uh, we're actually going to be discussing strategies to extend a startup's runway. We're going to talk about when startups should start thinking about their runway, uh, the downsides and upsides of different funding strategies, what to do when uh, your runway is running out, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll tell you what I'd like to talk about today. Etienne, you wrote a great article on 14 ways B2B entrepreneurs can extend their startup runway to go the distance. There's a lot to unpack. It's a long article, about 2,000 words. And if you're playing along at home, there's a link in the show notes for the full article. So if you want to stop here and read the article first, that's okay. What I like about it is you've given a lot of thought to possible options and come up with 14 that cover a broad spectrum of approaches. I like the way you've organized it into three broad categories. The first, using personal finances, savings, credits, bank loans. Second, using revenue to extend your runway, which is my favorite. And third is seeking investors. What led you to write this article? So first, thanks for the compliment. That's, that's great. It's great to, uh, to have people read it. So I think it's a mix of things. One thing is getting questions from entrepreneurs. So some people are, are usually very much focused on either getting investment or they're, they, they're not sure exactly how to, to keep going or they can actually buy themselves a little bit more time with their, their startup. Uh, I thought creating some kind of comparison guide would help them uh, assess their options and realize in some ways that there is more options than they imagine. I, I find oftentimes if you look at the success of startups, there's a lot of companies that have succeeded in part because they, they kept at it longer than either the competitors or, or they, they kept going after the problem uh, a long time. So just buying yourself more at-bats, buying yourself more time often is a good way to be able to put yourself in a position to find product market fit, to build a sustainable business, and be able to get to the, 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 the next milestones. I think that's, a, <laughs> that's someone speaking from experience. It always takes longer than you think. And if you can find ways to just persist in the environment, then I think you can put your learning to use, which I like about that. Now, it, it seems to me that extending this runway to find product market fit is a challenge that's underappreciated by first-time entrepreneurs. I perceive product market fit or finding the quest for product market fit uh, to be research and development. So there's a lot of research there and you can't necessarily be sure of when you're actually going to find you're going to find gold or you're going to find the actual right level of fit that you need to be able to build your business. So since it's a variable you can't really predict or you can't always always plan for, I think it makes sense to always be mindful of the reality that your time to get to product market is limited. So it's a, it makes sense to keep that top of mind and be able to assess different types of decisions based on that timeline that you have to be able to find product market fit. If I put my bootstrapper hat on for a minute, I really like that you identified five sources of potential revenue. The first is keeping your day job, which I think is underappreciated as well. Second is consulting or freelancing, your idea of creating add-on products like books, e-articles, and courses. Then the micro-task thing, where you might be designing logos, doing user tests, or translating content. And then finally, finding ways to pre-sell or otherwise accelerate the revenue. So I thought that was a good mix of strategies that m most people don't enumerate all five, or at least consider all five. 
You mentioned one advantage of consulting or freelancing is you can solve the same problems that your product will solve. And you used a term which I hadn't heard before, client strapping, where you establish a business relationship by solving a particular set of problems for a client first as a service and then transition to a product. You've done this personally with two startups. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs considering this path? I think part of the issue there is that if you're starting to do work that has no relationship with the work of your startup, then you've, at a minimum, you, you, have, you need to split your focus. Your attention goes in a different direction. You're not really thinking about the same problem space all day, or you're not interacting with the same kind of stakeholders. So at a minimum, some of that time might feel like it's wasted time or might not be yielding much more than, than just revenue to be able to keep going. There's value to that. But ideally, if you put yourself in a situation where you can double up, especially as you mentioned, as a bootstrapper, like your time is limited, your resources are limited. So there is ways for you to, to hit multiple births at the same time. I, I think that's ideal. For example, if we're talking about my own experience, for example, like it's been, it, it has been fairly strategic in how I have built products to kind of help myself gain a sustainability that would not force me to run around and try to get new customers for consulting and all these things. Because all these things have their own management. There's time just to be able to get the gigs for consulting, to chase the money, to interact with customers. And all these things take you away from that early focus. So if you're able to keep everything in one direction, that kind of takes you there. For example, you wrote a book on the topic that you're building your business, or you are building an audio that kind of drives you in that direction. You're blogging on Substack, or you're doing this other thing that generates income. But that is part of the thing that you're trying to achieve here to your business. I think there is great potential to use that as a way to learn at, at a minimum and then be able to fund a business at the same time, which is just a, 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 a double whammy, a double win. Yeah, I think I see some people where they're consulting using a technology that they're also going to use as part of their final offering, but they may not be serving the same customer set. So in a sense, they're gaining fluency, gaining. I do think there's, there's a certain amount of natural split focus in doing a startup, but... I like your idea that the more you can keep aligned, you and the team aligned in the same direction, same problem, same customer, you may be doing multiple things to serve that customer or solve that problem. I like that. But I think there's something that people tend to neglect. Almost any way you will fund your business will be to some level distracting. Whether you're raising outside capital, like that will take time, that will mean you'll need to build relationships. You'll need to uh, find the right people to fund your business. You need to go through a bunch of meetings, bunch of interactions that might not feel like actual progress for your business. So that is a distraction in itself. Whether you're building something else that you need to sell, there's risk there as well. So that could be wasteful to some extent. So to your point before, I think the ideal, especially in B2B, is to fund the business with the actual sales because there's also validation built in. There's also, it, it is helping you with the core goal of your business right away. But in different situations, that, that may not be possible or you may be in a situation where you need to adapt. That was the plan, but that's not exactly what you're able to do right now. One, I don't want to call it a mistake, but one confusion I think that technical entrepreneurs can sometimes fall prey to 
is they they conflate people are using my application with people are getting value out of it. And I think that there's all of these proxy variables that people look look at. They've downloaded it, they've logged in, they've exercised this feature. And I think one thing that the team has to hold itself accountable for if they're hoping to get paid or hoping to get renewals is the customer gets value when they stop using your tool and take an output or a result and use it somewhere else in their business. And so I like your idea of, of using the tool, maybe just, maybe just the team is using the tool to get a result because that focuses them on what are people actually paying for? And they're not strictly speaking paying for the tool, they're paying for the output, right? Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so something like sometimes it's, it might be called a concierge MVP, for example, where you are taking on the process and you may be delivering the value in a way that is more eye touch or is more involved or is more like consulting like than actually putting something as a, as a full solution. I think that oftentimes is probably a better approach where you get to figure out where the, the weak points are right? What the issues are, you're able to address the issues more specifically, and you can get paid for the, the specific outcomes. So it's a good way to help further define what the outcome is and help figure out what kind of expectations you're trying to match in terms of the, the customers. Because to what you're mentioning, even making the sales, the initial sale it is often not enough of a sign that you are at a in right direction. There's a lot of things that could actually go wrong there where they understood something, they got something else where they were expecting to get a certain outcome, but that has not been realized. So the longer you're able to be in that window of consideration or that window of discussion with the organization, the more you can actually learn about the specifics of how you would actually satisfy those, satisfy those needs for the organization. I think that may be an aspect of pre-selling where you're actually keeping the product behind your back, but you're using it to enable you to provide the service. So you identify about half a dozen options for outside funding and you start yeah. with friends and family, angels, VC, bootstrapper friendly funding that's cash flow based, grants and contests, and yep. then equity crowdfunding funding. That's a full list, but you seem to rule out friends and family because most entrepreneurs are also relying on them for emotional support. And most friends and family members are not prepared to lose their entire investment in the same way that angels or VCs are. Yeah. Do you have any advice there in terms of what priority or how you would prioritize where to look for funding? Uh, yeah, I do think there is something to being held accountable by an external something external. So in this case, talking specifically about friends and family, the evaluation metrics or, or all these things, like, like it, you, you do want some kind of evaluation that people make on their, their investments. That definitely helps in keeping you accountable and not just keep pouring, adding money in the, the business endlessly. I do feel there's something to be said about having some kind of stages and, or gates that can allow you to get more money, even if it's your own money that you're putting in the, the company. I do feel there is a lot of new-ish vehicles that, that, are, that can be really interesting for entrepreneurs. For example, if you're starting to have some revenue in the company, there's services like FounderPad, there is also Pipe was the initiator of this, this kind of movement. 
where they use the actual revenue of the company to assess how much money they could actually loan you. A clear bank also has variations on, on this as well. There's also some of these funds as well that are more founder friendly, like Tiny Seed or Calm, for example, that are not trying to uh, get 100x under their returns. The sources of funding kind of determine the amount of pressure or the, the type of pressure you're going to get on your, your business or your business model. I was speaking recently with an entrepreneur and they were discussing, basically they knew the acquire they were trying to get at the end of the day, and they knew at what type of valuation they would typically buy companies. And that meant that they had to rule out the traditional VCs because the VCs expectation of a return, return on the investment would mean that they would need to go in a different direction probably and start changing the nature of the company. So their game plan kind of conflicted with the traditional VC uh, game plan. So it's important to evaluate these options based on what you're actually trying to achieve with the company, especially once you're a little further along in the organization. So two that I've talked to were Lighter Capital, which I think was early, and NDVC. Yep. I think there's another advantage that those firms offer, the royalty-based financing models that's actually very valuable is they have a relatively cut and dried approach to how they make the evaluation. So you can normally get a decision very fast and they're not really going into a whole bunch of extraneous questions or what is your market or whatever. It's show us the revenue, show us proof of what you've done. And if it fits, if it's from SaaS software, if you can demonstrate that it's recurring, you get a decision, right? Which is in some ways, different or more pleasant in some ways, perhaps, than the, than the VC gauntlet. There is a special support person, I think. I think if you have a spouse or a significant other, I think you have to treat them almost as a board member from the beginning. And to your point about stages or gates or financing, yeah. I think you've got to lay out a plan that you hold yourself accountable to them um, on a periodic basis that says, here's where we are. They're kind of a passenger in your race car, right? Have you seen, have you seen people handle that well, or do you have a perspective on, you know, spouses or significant others? I, I think that's a great idea. I, I think that shouldn't be the only one though. Like, I think it kind of makes sense. Like I'm currently reading your, your new book and it makes sense to kind of build some sort of maybe advisory board, an informal advisory board at the minimum to be able to just get a different perspective. Building that objectivity, especially early on, is a good way to avoid fooling yourself uh, because it is very easy to convince yourself that these signs of people telling you that they like what you built or are meeting investors and they seem excited or whatever it is, it's easy to see those as reasons to double down on what you already believe was going to work out. And I've seen this quite quite a lot. There's a lot of people that that have in their life plans to start up and they will say, okay, so I will save up for six years. I'll have $250,000 and then I'll start up and then they start up and then the cash start coming down and they are uh, basically just losing out all their money as they're trying to figure out the right model. There's ways to kind of be way more capital effective. At a minimum, by having more gates or more checkpoints, I don't think you should be 
if you look at it from a corporate innovation perspective, they do work with these gates where you do a release funding based on certain key metrics or key achievements that the, the teams have done in terms of innovation. I think some kind of mechanic like that also makes sense on the personal side because I've seen too many entrepreneurs just burn through their old, old life savings or burn through the money that they've uh, saved up for their startup. No, I've definitely seen that. You mentioned the book. I had this epiphany that the real product, so I ordered I ordered two dozen author's copies and they came in this nice box from Amazon. Look, they go, man, that would make a great doorstop. So, <laughs> so if you well, want to, you can order, you can order two dozen of the, as a batch and just use them if you've got a door that keeps blowing shut, just use it as a doorstop. It's very handy. Well, then you need a pretty big ass if she needs two dozen doorstops. No, no, no. The all 24 in one box makes a nice doorstop. Ah, okay. Yes. Full box. I see. Full box. Yeah, the full box has got the right way. Also, a stepping stone you can you can build up, you know, if you have small children, you can help okay. them reach the countertop. I mean, it's got a lot of uses. It's not and, just a book. And if you actually opened it, you would find a lot of interesting advice around building a team. I'm not done with the book, but so far, so good. Unless you, the start of the book is actually really good. And it's all about uh, assembling the advisory board, the part of the sections that I'm reading, and how you recruit the uh, co-founders, which are questions that we keep getting as well. So one, one challenge we covered, but I want to dig in a little bit, is that keeping your day job or some of these other freelancing things, you can actually uh, lose focus. Do you have any suggestions for, but we agree that it's still a good idea to do that as opposed to go all in at the beginning. Do you have any suggestions for how you've seen entrepreneurs maintain focus, even though they're, they've yeah. kind of got their, their foot in two worlds or maybe even three worlds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I 100% used to think like that as well, that you get more results by being completely focused on the work. The reality is, especially early stage, there is a lot of things that you end up doing that, that feel like being in a startup, but that don't actually move the needle for real. So I do feel that having some kind of force constraint like that as well, not only will reduce your blood pressure, which is always nice, it will also make you make more strategic decisions and also force you to think about things more carefully. And there's also proven studies that, that talk about basically we don't think the same way once we're trying to have some trouble with money or once, once money becomes a factor and a lot of people are not that comfortable with uh, not having income coming in. So that does tend to change the way we think. I, I do feel having a job or keeping some constraints is uh, underrated in some ways. I wouldn't have caught, said that uh, several years ago, but at this point, I do, do feel that, um, and I think we talked about it in, in other episodes to some extent. I think we need to view this more as um, a career as opposed to one specific effort. And I do find the language sometimes is problematic where we say, I am, I'm starting a startup. So you've committed to starting a startup. So you are in a boat and you're in this ship, no matter what happens. And then that kind of changes the way you take. Whereas if you're just fiddling around or you're positioning it as a way I'm exploring this topic or I'm exploring that market, you're, if nothing else, your emotional attachment to the thing that you're working on especially at a stage where it kind of makes sense to pump the brake a little bit to kind of have more of that, I guess, more of that consideration. It makes a lot of sense, I believe. So I've gone through this, and I think the thing I realized was you do have to commit, yeah. but 
view your current employer as kind of an investor, I think you also have to, to some extent, let go of your career at that company. And it's not that you do a bad job, but you figure out what an adequate or acceptable job is. It allows you to still be helpful to your team members and meet your obligations, but your something extra is now going somewhere else, right? The other thing, when you talk about stage gates, there's something about the last minute, the pressure that unlocks a certain amount of creativity, right? There's this great quote, Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson. Calvin says, you can't turn creativity on like a faucet. It takes last minute deadline pressure, right? Yeah. But but I think by creating these small deadlines, you're more likely to break yourself out of self-imposed constraints than if you say, I watched a lot of guys at Cisco take their winnings and start a company and they would work for 18 months and they didn't start to make hard decisions until about a month, you know, yeah. 15 or 16, right? And yeah. And they weren't well served by. Yeah. So to that point, when would you suggest that entrepreneurs start thinking about their runway or start thinking in terms of runway? Well, I, I think the second time you do it, you think about the runway before you start. You, you, so you should, I, or you do. I think you, unless you're a slow learner, <laughs> I think you think about it. No, I think you think about it up front. The first time you go through, you're optimistic and this is going to be great. And, you know, it's all going to work. And, and, you know, sometimes it does. And you hear those stories and sometimes the stories you hear have a whole bunch of things edited out of them. So they're a little misleading. Yeah. But I think if I look at successful serial entrepreneurs, they, they, to borrow a phrase, they begin with the end in mind. And it's not necessarily an exit or whatever, but they want to get to, they're, they're trying to figure out how to get to break even cash flow at least. So, or product market fits. So they now have got, they now, they know who a customer is and they've got some ability to really explore. So I think it's, I think it's from the beginning. Yeah, I agree with that. But to your point, and maybe, maybe this is a good time to point out the quote, good entrepreneurs learn from their mistakes. Great entrepreneurs learn from others' mistakes. So maybe this is a benefit that people get from this, this conversation, but otherwise I do, do think people eventually are awakened by that realization that they, they need to start thinking about their runway. And oftentimes it, it tends to be further out or a little later than it probably should be. And that causes a lot of structural challenges to some extent where if you didn't, if you're planning to bootstrap the business, but suddenly you need to raise capital, it's quite likely that your unit economics, your strategy, your, the structure of the business don't necessarily make it VC friendly or VC interesting at a minimum and, and vice versa. So it's very difficult to kind of shift focus without incurring what I like to call a, a learning tax. Even if you have a year left and you're realizing that your runway is not, is not headed in the right direction, you will need some time just to pivot to a different strategies as opposed to, as you mentioned, if you are thinking about that from the start because that would just help you get in the right direction a little bit so you get the right milestone going. So what I observe a little bit, there's two peaks of entrepreneurship, the 20s and the 40s, right? And the people start companies at all ages, but Kaufman says 20s and 40s, and I kind of buy into it. Yep. But what I observe from the 
breakfast, whichever breakfast is, the guys that come in their 20s for the most part look at it as an adventure, right? And it may or may not work, but it, it's more of an adventure. The guys in their 40s, they don't look at it like an adventure. They look at it like a this career is, decision. Yeah. Career decision. It's like, what, because, because once you become free range, once you leave employment, if yep. you step away from a job, they just they put a little tag on your ear or an X on your back and say, like, yeah, that guy, that guy's never coming back into the cage. He's seen the, you know. So, so I think those guys and women are more realistic in general. Yeah. Uh, about, yeah. About what's going on, and so I think that's that's a good mindset. And it's not that they it's not that they are afraid of failing, but they. I think the other thing that they do that you mentioned earlier is when they're going on sales calls or they're soliciting input, they're calling in favors from people. And so if they're making commitments, they're not making commitments to strangers. They're making commitments to at least network, yeah. their network, right? And so it's, it's a different, there's a different level of risk or cost. Yeah. And I think they're more prudent or maybe more cautious about overcommitting. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, so if you are, and, and I assume that that happens to you as well, like if you have a founder that comes to you and says, we only have eight months left of runway, what do you suggest we do? So if they've been out there a while, I try and get them to go back and look at what's worked and see, do they have something they can sell? Have they gotten the signal that they ignored because they thought the real thing was going to be X. And maybe, you know, I've seen this happen multiple times where multiple people have told them, I'd pay for that if you develop it. And they're like convinced they're going to go do something else. And so they persist in doing the thing they want to do. And the market is telling them, you know, we'll pay you for this. And sometimes as you face that crunch, you realize, well, maybe I should you know, just take their money and get good at X, create some kind of profit sanctuary or base camp. I think that's the big one is, is go back and see if two or three of the people you talk to so they would pay you for something that you decided you didn't want to do, or you decided it was less important than the big thing you were working on. Which is a good way to fund your business at the same time. If you're able to get those revenue, maybe you gradually go back to the original vision, or maybe that becomes the vision for the company? To me, I don't think you have to give up on the vision. I think it's it's more a sequence of small successes, right? I mean, I just I literally came off a conversation where we where we looked at the, this guy was going to look and try and raise between a half a million and a million, and they had a product that if he could go sell some copies, he could get to like 600 in recurring this year. And it's like, well, why not go do that? Because that provides more. So first of all, you might go chase VC for you and nothing happens. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, when you're chasing revenue, you're at least getting feedback. Instead of getting opinions from investors about what might work, you're getting feedback from yeah. prospects about what they need. Yeah, yeah. And that can help accelerate any process. The, the, the more you put yourself out there at the end of the day, Oftentimes, the more likely you are to be able to close a sale, even if it's not exactly what you were hoping to sell initially. Are there any planning rules of thumb that you've seen teams 
do or that you recommend to stay out of trouble here, at least to minimize runway problems? Yeah, I, I think one good thing that came out from this discussion, I think it, it makes sense to start thinking as early as possible about how you will you will manage your 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 runway. So what are the options that what are, what's your plan today? What's your plan if this doesn't work perfectly? And what's your plan? So looking at different horizons and have an idea of what are the alternatives at each uh, at each stage as you move forward. How about yourself? What would be one takeaway from this discussion? Yeah, I'm trying to. So the acronym is PACE, and I can't remember all four, but but essentially there's a there's a principle for military communications that you have a primary, an alternate, okay. a, a reduced thing, and then an emergency. I think it's not bad to have four kind of buckets or four options that say, here's our primary plan. If this doesn't work, here's our alternate plan. And then here's two backups. I think the second reason why the alternate is useful is if the primary doesn't work, I see a lot of teams persist on the primary because they didn't have a backup. And so they look at it as, should we keep going or give up? And it's, it's better nine months earlier when you were doing the planning to say we could do A or B. And so if A doesn't work out, you can at least pick B and not view it as a failure, right? I think so. that would be my, my second thing is have a plan B. You don't have to pull the trigger on it, but at least you don't face this, this situation where everybody feels bad yeah. and you're persisting on a plan because you can't come up with an alternate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so maybe as a as a as an aside to that, it, it might be good as you move forward when you hear these stories from customers to just write them down. Like in the future, they might be they might become useful. Like I spoke to this organization, they told us that we they didn't necessarily need exactly what we're selling, but they might buy X, Y, or Z. But those are interesting as well because they can be it's can make it easier for you to revisit those should you ever in the future to kind of assemble some some kind of thinking there. That's actually a really good suggestion. <laughs> I like to make good suggestions. <laughs> Once a podcast, you come up with something that's yeah, it's like that. Thank you. Go. I should do that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think there's there's maybe you got this from across a few episodes, but I think there's great great benefit about writing things down because then you can just revisit it. And oftentimes we tend to forget things that take on meaning in a different context to some extent. And that's kind of what you're talking about with this. Like it was not interesting in the past, but then things change. And now maybe that same idea that we were discounting before has become much more relevant or much more interesting right now. So maybe we uh, we just do one last takeaway. Anything else that you think an entrepreneur should, should keep in mind? I think it's difficult to think about. Uh, it's difficult to think about failure and it can be paralyzing but I think it's better to start more in obscurity to keep your day job, to commit, but maybe not tell everybody you know. You're, maybe you just you, you commit to exploring, you find at least one co-conspirator, one co-founder, and start exploring. It, it's easier to, to stay out than get out. And so I think that keeping your day job and exploring, but doing so in a serious manner, I think that gets undervalued. Yeah, I like your point of view about reframing your job and just viewing it differently and then trying to make the best of the situation. I think that's good for the, today. So where can people uh, go to ask us any questions or anything like that? 
So on Twitter, you're Lean B2B and yes. I'm SK Murphy. Yes. And I'll please see. give us feedback. Yeah, we'll, we'll see you guys in a future episode. Thanks for listening to the Time to Market podcast. If you're finding the show useful so far, we'd love it if you left a rating, left a review, shared it with another B2B founder, and if you showed up next week for more actionable advice. See you then.